A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and besought him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, for this 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Holy Mother Church has provided us with a truly powerful and sobering gospel. We pick up precisely where we left off in our last episode, as Jesus is in the process of instructing his disciples concerning how they were to behave, how they were to function as a community of faith following Jesus' departure. And of course, I'm speaking of his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. If you notice, Jesus, over the last several chapters, has been doing precisely that. He's been preparing his disciples for life within the community of faith that we call the church. If you back up a few chapters to chapter 16, we noted that Jesus establishes Simon Peter as the rock upon which he would build his church, his ecclesia in the Greek, his assembly. And he furthermore endows Simon Peter with authority. He gives him the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the power to bind and to loose. Furthermore, if you jump to chapter 18, and this is the chapter that we've been examining, Jesus also extends. He communicates that same authority to bind and to loose to the other apostles. And he's instructing them, as we noted in our last episode, instructing them as to how they were to 
behave in the household of faith, how they were to function as shepherds, always seeking out the least, the last, and the lost. And he specifically addresses, as we noted, he addresses the whole question of those members of the body of Christ, members of the church, who sin or cause scandal within the body of Christ, and how they, as shepherds, were to reach out to, to seek out the lost sheep in order to reconcile them, in order to restore them into full communion with the body of Christ. Now, today's gospel picks up precisely where we left off, and that Simon Peter now addresses Jesus as he and the rest of the apostles are processing Jesus' instructions. As I noted in our last episode, this chapter, chapter 18, represents the fourth major discourse of the five major discourses found in Matthew's gospel. This discourse is the discourse on the church, or some refer to it as the discourse on community instructions. He is forming and preparing his disciples for life within the church and for the discharging of their duty as shepherds to shepherd over, to lead and to guide the people of God. And so he addresses this whole question of fraternal correction, of seeking after those wayward sons and daughters in order to restore them. Now, Simon Peter here, in thinking about and processing Jesus' instructions, he asks a rather logical question. If they are to be shepherds, if they are to go after, in particular, the lost sheep, those members of the body of Christ who have committed grave sins, who have caused grave scandal, that they are to reach out to them in order to reconcile them. Well, what about those individuals, those brothers in the body of Christ who not only commit grave sins or cause scandal and are later restored and reconciled to the body of Christ, but, but what about those recidivist brothers and sisters who habitually fall into grave sin and who perhaps habitually cause grave scandal. How many times are they to reach out to them? How many times are they to extend forgiveness to those who habitually break God's commandments or cause grave scandal? And this is a great question. It's a logical question. How far are they to go in extending mercy and forgiveness? And so we pick up in the first verses of our gospel, then I quote, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And so Simon Peter here, he proffers to the Lord, he suggests, puts forth a number. How many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Now, where does he get this number? Again, let's put this in its proper context. During the time of our blessed Lord, the first century, the rabbis, the rabbis had taught, generally speaking, that one was to forgive the trespasses or the debts of others, the sins of others, upwards of three times. Now, where did they get this? Well, if you survey the Old Testament scriptures, and one example that I'll share with you comes from the book of the prophet Amos. In the first chapter of Amos, we find here the prophet delivering a series of judgments to a number of cities, cities that surrounded the people of God, that surrounded Judah and Israel. And then he concludes actually by delivering 
judgments against Judah and Israel. But let me just point out a couple of verses here. You're going to see a pattern emerge. It says here in verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Let's stop there. Notice the language here. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus. He's speaking of the pagan city of Damascus. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment which seems to suggest that God would otherwise revoke the punishment due to this wicked city if they were to truly repent after the third time. But, he mentions here, he states, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So God is describing here a certain limit, a limit to his mercy and his willingness to extend forgiveness. And this is not limited to the pagan cities or the pagan nations, because if you were to survey chapters one and two of the book of the prophet Amos, you would see this formula being repeated over and over again. In verse six, he declares, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he does this over and over again. In verse nine, he addresses the wicked city, the pagan city of Tyre. In verse 11, he addresses Edom. In verse 13, the Ammonites. In verse 1 of chapter 2, the city of Moab. In verse 4, he addresses Judah. And in verse 6, he addresses Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, why do I bring this up? This is a significant pattern, which goes back to what I said earlier. It is believed that the ancient rabbis held fast to this pattern. They taught their people that they were to forgive the sins, the offenses of others upwards of three times. And likewise, conversely, one was to ask for forgiveness upwards of three times for any offenses that they might have committed. And after the third time of asking for forgiveness, if forgiveness was withheld, then it was no longer the responsibility of the offending party now that person who was injured would now bear the burden of unforgiveness. I hope that makes sense to you. So it was a common and general practice of teaching that we say nowadays, three strikes and you're out, that after three times that one was then free from that burden. Now I bring that up because I want you to understand that Simon Peter here, as he is asking this question, and as he's offering this, this number, seven, he declares, going back to the gospel, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Which, when you consider the context, seems rather generous. <laughs> seven times. And that's a very biblical number. When you look at the symbolism, the significance of the number of seven, the number of fullness and completion and perfection, this is a number associated with the swearing of an oath. And so Simon Peter here is putting forth a very biblical number, a number denoting plentitude. How many times should I offer forgiveness? Seven times? And also I think that Simon Peter is drawing from the book of Genesis. If you go with me to Genesis chapter 4, in Genesis 4, 
we have the iconic passage regarding Cain, who slew his brother Abel, and the punishment, the judgment that was meted out to him because of his great sin, the first homicide or fratricide. He slew his brother out of envy, jealousy, anger. And when you look here in verse 13, following the pronouncement of God's judgment, it states here, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day away from the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Close quote. And so here God is pledging to Cain that for anyone who slays Cain, vengeance shall be meted out to that person by God himself sevenfold. And so there are many commentators that believe, and this is quite sensible, that, that Simon Peter here is drawing from this pronouncement. The Lord is promising Cain sevenfold vengeance for anyone who seeks to slay him. And here, Simon Peter, he is declaring that upwards of seven times there will be a sevenfold forgiveness offered to those who sin against the body of Christ. Now, what's even more interesting is that when you consider the response on the part of our blessed Lord, our Lord, in hearing Simon declare this, he shocks him and the rest of the apostles. Why? Because he declares in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, which must have blown them out of the water. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now this, what's interesting about this is that this is also a direct parallel to what we find in Genesis chapter 4. We began by citing verse 15. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. But later on in that same chapter, as it describes the list of descendants of Cain, of the line of Cain, we find here the mention of Lamech, who is the great, 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 great grandson of Cain, of the line of Cain, who was wicked. And if you jump with me to the second part of verse 23, 23b and 24, he states the following, and I quote, I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Close quote. You see what's going on here? You look at today's gospel through the lens of, or you compare and contrast today's gospel, the first few verses, with chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, and you see the parallels. God promises to exact vengeance, to visit upon those who would take the life of Cain sevenfold vengeance. And then the descendant of Cain, Lamech here, in a boastful way, he being a violent and murderous man, he declares here in a mocking way, in a blasphemous way, he is taking the word spoken by God regarding his ancestor, Cain, and he is applying these words in a blasphemous way to himself. 
If Cain is avenged sevenfold, as God declared, truly Lamech 77-fold. That is a very blasphemous and presumptuous statement. So he is speaking of a 77-fold vengeance, a lust that he has for vengeance, vengeance against his enemies. And so here we have, when you compare and contrast this with today's gospel, you have Jesus declaring, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Other translations render it 77 times in accord with what we find in Genesis chapter 4. That is highly significant because we see that there is a direct parallel between these verses, this passage, and Genesis chapter 4. The Lord here is speaking of limitless forgiveness. I mean, he's not speaking strictly of this number that you don't go past 77 or 70 times 7. In this particular translation, the Revised Standard Version, it renders it 70 times 7. Other translations have it as 77. But the point, the fundamental point being made here is that Jesus is putting forth limitless mercy and forgiveness. That that is the standard. That is the standard that these followers of Jesus are called to uphold. Not setting limits or boundaries on the whole question of forgiveness. But to forgive in a truly magnanimous and God-like way. This number, this figure of seven. Remember, seven is fullness, perfection, completion, plentitude. Jesus here is multiplying this 70 times seven, which equals 490. And a case can be made that the Jesus here is not merely linking this to what we find in the book of Genesis chapter four. But if you look at passages like Daniel chapter nine, in Daniel chapter nine, the prophet is speaking of, he's delivering a prophecy known as the prophecy of 70 weeks. And when you add up all of the time periods given in this passage, and I'm speaking of verses 24 through 27, they add up to 490 years. He speaks about a period of 490 years, 490 years during which the sins of the people of God, of Israel, were to be atoned. And at the end of this period of 490 years, the Messiah would come and offer a perfect atoning sacrifice for the sake of the salvation of God's people, atoning for their sins. And of course, he's pointing forward to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, who has come to atone for the sins, not only of the people of Israel, but of the world. So 490, according to the prophet Daniel, synonymous with atonement, with true and lasting mercy and forgiveness. And so, whichever way you cut it, whether it's 77 times or 70 times 7, ultimately they equal the same, limitless mercy. That's the whole point to what Jesus declares here. He is declaring to his disciples, to his apostles, that they were to imitate God in his mercy, in his generosity, in his forgiveness. Jesus then launches into this sobering parable regarding the unforgiving servant in order to illustrate, to illustrate the message that he is seeking to communicate to them. No, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. We're talking about limitless forgiveness. Let me show you how it works. 
in the kingdom. And he launches into this parable, beginning in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And of course we know, if you read verse 35, the final verse of the parable, which really gives the meaning of the parable, the king here represents God the Father. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, when he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's stop there. What's important to note here is that the RSV, the Revised Standard Version Translation that I'm reading from, it gives us a very specific and accurate translation from the original Greek. Whereas the New American Bible translation that is used for the lectionary, which you're going to hear proclaimed on Sunday, it does not give us that level of specificity and accuracy. What you're going to hear on Sunday is the fact that this servant owed him, owed his master, owed the king a huge amount. A huge amount. Now that is true. The servant owed his master a huge amount. But what's sad is that that does not do justice. It does not aptly describe the magnitude of this debt, this massive debt, this incalculable debt that was owed to the master. By saying he owed him a huge amount, it doesn't even scratch the surface of the level of debt that we're talking about here. Let me see if I can break this down for you. It states here, when you look at the original Greek, it employs a Greek term for 10,000. 10,000, there is a term in the Greek for 10,000, for that sum, that number. That was the highest amount, the highest amount that had a specific term for it in the Greek language. The term is murion talanton. Murion means 10,000. Talanton means talents. Murion, by the way, is the root of the word in English, myriad. And so we're talking about a myriad of talents. A myriad meaning a very large number or countless, which is significant. Why? Because we're talking about limitless forgiveness. Remember, 77 times or 70 times 7, that speaks of limitless forgiveness and mercy. And here Jesus is using this term, which is translated into the Greek, employed here, 10,000, because that was the highest unit of measurement. That was the highest number. And that speaks to the limitless nature of God's forgiveness. And here in context, when you look at this parable, it speaks of the limitless debt that was owed. This enormous and unfathomable debt that was owed to the king. A number too large to count. So let me start with that. He owed him 10,000 talents from the Greek, talanton. And a talent, you're probably familiar with that from the other parable regarding the talents. The two disciples, or servants rather, who invested their talents and were able to generate a profit for their master as opposed to that final one who, instead of investing his talent, he buried the talent. Now, what exactly is a talent? In the ancient world, the largest monetary measurement was the talent, from the Greek talanton. The talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii, which is the currency of the Romans, or drachmas, the currency of the Greeks. A talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. Remember that one denarius 
is the equivalent of one day's wage. 6,000 denarii would be the equivalent of 6,000 days worth of wages or the equivalent of 16 years worth of wages. Now let's do the math here. It says here that the servant owed his master 10,000 talents. Now do the math. If one talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii, what would 10,000 be the equivalent of? We're talking about 60 million days worth of wages. We're talking about the equivalent of over 160,000 years worth of wages. Now think about it. Let that sink in. We're talking about the equivalent of, of trillions of dollars today. We're talking about an unfathomable sum of money here that was owed to the king. Put that into perspective here. So I hope you can appreciate my comment earlier regarding the New American Bible Translation. A huge amount, while true, it doesn't do justice to the level of magnitude here. He owed his master, his king, 60 million denarii, the equivalent of 164,000 years worth of wages. How in the world, A, how in the world did he incur this debt? We don't have the answer to that. But again, this is a parable. Those details are not important. What's important is that he was being held accountable for this debt. Now, how in the world was he going to pay this off? I mean, this, this points to, again, the radical nature of God's mercy because it says he owed him 10,000 talents. And as he could not pay, <laughs> verse 25, that's the understatement of the day, his Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, even with the actions of the king, ordering him to be sold. Historians tell us that, generally speaking, slaves were sold at a rate of 2,000 denarii per slave. And so if he sold this slave, he'd get $2,000. With his wife, that's $4,000. And children, depending on how many children, how much would the king be able to gain from selling these slaves? It would not make the slightest dent in the debt that was owed. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This speaks to the mercy, the forgiveness, the generosity, the magnanimity. Clearly, the king here represents God. It represents our Lord, who is merciful. And regardless of, of how great the sum is that we owe to the Lord because of our trespasses. I mean, this is the analogy that Jesus is using. Our Lord is merciful and he is forgiving. Now, that's not where the story ends. It picks up in verse 28. But that same servant, after he was forgiven, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Let's stop there. Remember, if one denarius is the equivalent of one day's wage, 100 denarii would be the equivalent of 100 days' wages. We're talking about three months' worth of wages, which is not some insignificant sum. But nevertheless, it cannot compare with 10,000 
talents. And so he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and besought him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. Let's stop there. And so here we have an incredible irony. Because the one who was forgiven this exorbitant amount, this incredible and astronomical debt was forgiven, was forgiven completely by the king who was generous and merciful and responded to the plaintiff cry. Remember, we're told that the servant fell on his knees. He fell on his face before his king. He besought him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Knowing full well that that was a promise that he could not possibly keep. He owed a debt he could not pay. And the king was merciful towards him, forgiving him an astronomical debt, which points to the magnanimity, the generosity, the mercy of this great king. But yet the one who was forgiven this insurmountable debt upon encountering a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, I mean, talk about in the New American Bible, once again, it says a much smaller amount. No, <laughs> that doesn't even get to it. When you compare 10,000 talents with 100 denarii, there's just no comparison. He owed him a small sum. And yet, when his fellow servant fell on his knees and besought him with the same words, asking him to be patient, to be merciful, that he would repay his debt this unforgiving servant, we're told that, that he took his fellow servant by the throat, choking him in anger, demanding of him, pay what you owe. He went a step further. Not only did he demand immediate payment of the debt owed to him, but he threw this man in prison, in debtor's prison. And we're told that when his fellow servants, when the other servants of the king caught wind of the fact, that this unforgiving servant was forgiven this astronomical debt that he could never repay, when they learned about the magnanimity and the mercy extended to this servant, and on top of that, when they found out that this servant who had been forgiven this incredible debt had thrown his fellow servant, who owed him a paltry amount in comparison, when they found out about this injustice, they went to the king and informed the king of this incredible injustice. And the king summoned this unforgiving servant. He summoned him. In verse 32, we read, Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. He calls him out because of his wickedness. 
I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, verse 34, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. In other words, he was thrown into debtor's prison where he would spend the rest of his life. Life in prison. Why? Because he failed to show mercy. To show forth mercy to the one who owed him a debt. While rejoicing at the fact that the king, the king who was owed an incredible, incalculable debt, had forgiven him that debt. He calls him out for his hypocrisy. He calls him out for his lack of forgiveness and grace and throws him in prison where he would spend the rest of his life. Now, the moral of the story and the whole point of this parable is found in the final verse. In verse 35, we read, So also, Jesus declares, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Of course, he's speaking of his heavenly Father. The king represents God the Father, who is merciful and forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, as the psalmist declares. But yet, when we, when we fail to forgive, when we fail to reflect that mercy in our own lives, we who beg of the Lord that he forgive us our debts, when we don't show that same grace, that same mercy towards others, we commit a grave sin. This is the very point of the parable. Jesus is teaching about forgiveness, the importance of forgiveness. And this message is not a new one. This is not the first time that Jesus introduces to his disciples this teaching on forgiveness. If you recall, going back to the Beatitudes, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, in this Sermon on the Mount, following the Beatitudes, Jesus teaches them about prayer. He teaches them the Our Father, the greatest prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is the model for all prayer. And he states here in verse 12 of chapter 6, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And notice that word. There's a hinge word there, and it's the word as. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. See, the Our Father is a very dangerous prayer to pray. We have to think about. Think about the words. Think about what it is that Jesus wishes to place on the mouths of every would-be disciple, that we are to ask God to forgive us our debts, to forgive us our sins, the sins that we have committed against him. Forgive us our debts. And notice the hinge word there, as. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The forgiveness that we're begging from God is contingent upon the forgiveness that we extend to others. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. I mean, we know that we're debtors. We know that we owe God. Why? Because we're sinners. 
And because we are sinners, because we have sinned and continually sin against God, we owe God a debt, a debt that we could not possibly pay. That's where Jesus comes in. He paid the debt for us. There was no way that we could pay that debt, to repay that debt. Go back to the parable. This incredible and incalculable debt that was impossible for this servant to pay. And what did the king do? He wiped away that debt in one fell swoop and forgave him that debt. Well, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary, through his passion and death on the cross and glorious resurrection, Jesus pays a debt that he didn't know because we owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid it. He paid the price for us, for our salvation. And so extends to us mercy that he won for us on Calvary. But he makes it abundantly clear in this prayer that he teaches his disciples that we are to beg for God's forgiveness, forgive us our debts as to the degree that, to the measure that we forgive those who sin against us to the degree that we forgive the debts of others. And so when we think about the sins that we've committed, when we think about the debt that we owe God because of our trespasses, how could we possibly, how could we possibly think that we could ask God to forgive us our great debt if we are not willing, if we are unwilling to forgive the sins of others, the debts of others? In this parable, Jesus illustrates this most important teaching that we will receive the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God to the degree that we show forth that mercy towards others. That is a sobering notion, my friends. And he drives this home in that final verse. In fact, before we, we go back to the gospel text, if you read on in verse 14, it states, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But, verse 15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Close quote. So Jesus here is further elucidating the understanding of his disciples with regard to the Our Father. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is a fundamental teaching of Jesus that unfortunately is lost on so many of us who still presume that we can ask God, that we can beg God and demand of God his mercy when we do not in our everyday walk, in our lives, when we do not show forth that same mercy. No, mercy and forgiveness will be withheld from us should we not show forth that mercy towards others. See how that works? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is furthermore borne out in our first reading for this Sunday, which is taken from the 27th chapter of the book of Sirach. We begin in verse 30. Anger and wrath, these also are abominations, and the sinful man will possess them. Stop there for a second. Apply that to this gospel. Think about the actions of the unforgiving servant. His unforgiveness, his lack of mercy, led to him having a hardened heart. And when he found that fellow servant who owed him that sum, 
of 100 days worth of wages, he grabbed him by the throat. He began to choke him, demanding that he repay him. See, unforgiveness leads to bitterness, to the hardening of one's heart. And it can lead to what? It says here, anger and wrath. And this unforgiving servant was wrathful in that he became violent with his fellow servant, seeking to exact payment of this debt. Anger, according to the book of Sirach, and wrath, these also are abominations. And the sinful man, the unforgiving man, will possess them. Then we move into verse 1 of chapter 28. He that takes vengeance will suffer vengeance from the Lord. And that is precisely what takes place in today's parable. And he will firmly establish his sins. Verse 2, forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like something that Jesus would teach. It sounds like something that would flow from the Beatitudes. Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Again, going back to the Our Father. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Verse 3. Does a man harbor anger against another and yet seek for healing from the Lord? Once again, you apply this to the gospel, it is so powerful. It is so obvious what our Lord is teaching here. Does a man harbor anger against another and yet seek for healing from the Lord? Verse 4, does he have no mercy toward a man like himself and yet pray for his own sins? If he himself, verse 5, being flesh, maintains wrath, who will make expiation for his sins? Verse 6, and here we have the first of, of two exhortations. Remember the end of your life and cease from enmity. Remember destruction and death and be true to the commandments. Verse 7, remember the commandments and do not be angry with your neighbor. Remember the covenant of the Most High and overlook ignorance. Close quote. You can see Jesus' teaching echoes so many of these proverbs here, especially the teaching here regarding anger and vengeance and the importance of forgiveness. This dovetails beautifully with today's gospel and furthermore with the rest of the teaching of Jesus on this question of forgiveness. Verse 2, forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Beautiful. I mean, this is further complemented by our responsorial psalm, which is taken from Psalm 103. And the response is, the Lord is kind and merciful slow to anger, and rich in compassion. And this psalm, as you're going to see in a moment, extols the great mercy, kindness, and patience of the Lord, his forgiveness. We begin in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, 
who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Then we jump to verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Close quote. This psalm speaks to us of the great, the limitless mercy of the Lord. And this is a message that I think we desperately need to hear. I know of many, many individuals, many believers who struggle with this, who somehow have a mistaken notion regarding God's mercy, that there isn't enough mercy to cover their sins. There isn't enough mercy for them. Because of the gravity of their sins, because of the horrendous things they have done, I've encountered individuals who doubt the mercy of God, who believe that there are limits to God's mercy. And as the gospel so boldly declares Jesus in his parable, and furthermore, in our first reading from the book of Sirach in chapter 27, and here in Psalm 103 and throughout the scriptures, Sacred scriptures attest to the fact that God is mercy. He is not only merciful, he is divine mercy. And his mercy knows no bounds. It knows no limit. And yet there are many who who struggle with that, who believe their sins to be greater than the mercy and the love of God. I want to close this episode by sharing a few beautiful and truly powerful passages from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that I think will further elucidate our understanding of today's gospel, of the scriptures laid out for us for this 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And I want to begin with paragraph 982, which states, and I quote, and I want you to listen to this, quote, there is no offense, however serious, that the church cannot forgive. There is no one, however wicked and guilty, who may not confidently hope for forgiveness, provided his repentance is honest. Christ, who died for all men, desires that in his church, the gates of forgiveness should always be open to anyone who turns away from sin. Close quote. There is no offense, there is no sin greater than the mercy of God. There is no sin, no offense, however serious, that the church cannot forgive. Remember that Jesus empowers his church, the church that he founded on the rock of Simon Peter. He gave to his church the authority to bind and to loose, as we pointed out in our last episode. He gave his apostles the authority to bind and to loose in his name. In John chapter 20, he appears to the disciples behind locked doors and he communicates to them. His Spirit, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. He gives his church the authority to bind and to loose, to forgive and to retain sins. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that there is no offense, however serious, that the church cannot forgive. There is no sin beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, provided that there is true repentance. This 
is a message that must be heard by each and every would-be believer in Christ. There is no limit to the mercy that God offers to us. And we can access that mercy provided, once again, going back to the Our Father, going back to Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In paragraph 2842 of the Catechism, which is a passage reflecting upon the Our Father, as it reflects upon that very verse from the Our Father, as we forgive those who trespass against us, or as we forgive our debtors. It states here in paragraph 2842, quote, this, quote, as, unquote, is not unique in Jesus' teaching. Quote, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, unquote. Quote, be merciful even as your Father is merciful, unquote. Quote, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, unquote. It is impossible to keep the Lord's commandment by imitating the divine model from outside. There has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of our God. Only the Spirit by whom we live can make, quote, ours, unquote, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Then the unity of forgiveness becomes possible and we find ourselves, quote, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave, unquote, us. Close quote. Isn't that a powerful paragraph from the Catechism, which underscores the teaching of our blessed Lord. And I love what it says here. It is impossible to keep the Lord's commandment by imitating the divine model from outside. There has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart. Jesus is calling us not to merely give his teaching lip service, but to truly bear this out in our everyday walk of life. He's calling us to incarnate his words, that we would live out that radical forgiveness in our everyday lives. This teaching goes on in the very next paragraph, paragraph 2843, quote, Thus the Lord's words on forgiveness, the love that loves to the end, becomes a living reality. The parable of the merciless servant, which crowns the Lord's teaching on ecclesial communion, ends with these words, quote, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It is there, in fact, quote, in the depths of the heart, unquote, that everything is bound and loosed. It is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory in transforming the hurt into intercession. Close quote. Now, I want to stop there and I want to go back because there's a portion here in this beautiful section from the Catechism. In this very paragraph, it states, it is not in our power not to feel or to forget 
an offense. It recognizes, the catechism recognizes that humanly speaking, to forgive is difficult. Why? Because there's the wound. <laughs> there's the pain. It is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense. And there are many, there are many who struggle with forgiveness and with the command of our blessed Lord because they think to themselves, but, but I just, I, I still, I'm hurt. My feelings are still hurt. I'm still offended. How can I possibly forgive when I feel this profound hurt and sorrow? And is the forgiveness that the Lord is requiring of me, does that involve also forgetting the offense? And the catechism is quite clear here. Our Lord understands how difficult it is for us to forgive. He understands the pain and the sorrow that is associated with being injured, being sinned against, how difficult it is to overcome those emotions, that hurt, that pain. What's more, to forget the injury, to forget the offense that was given, that also is very difficult. And when our Lord commands us to forgive one another, to forgive our debtors, he understands full well that it is going to be impossible for us in one fell swoop to snap our fingers and to immediately forget the offense that was given. The Catechism, the Catholic Church, acknowledges that. Once again, I want to read this to you. It states, it is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense. But understand the forgiveness that, that is required of us must overcome in spite of the feelings, in spite of the hurt and the pain, in spite of the fact that perhaps this offense has been seared into our memory. Nevertheless, we are to forgive. The Catechism goes on. I want you to understand the, the full context here. It acknowledges it is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense, but, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory in transforming the hurt into intercession. Please don't miss this. It says, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit. See, when the Holy Spirit lives in us through baptism, we're sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit through confirmation. If the Holy Spirit lives in us, the Holy Spirit seeks to transform us, to sanctify us, to perfect us, to make us holy. And so if we surrender to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wishes to empower us, to strengthen us, in order that we might live the life of Christ, that we might live out the Beatitudes, that we might live out his commandments according to his word and his teachings. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can not, we could never live out the teachings of Christ. It is in and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to live out this Christian life. For apart from God, apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. And so it says here, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit, that surrenders to the power of the Holy Spirit. The heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion. It takes that sorrow that we experience, that pain, that woundedness that we feel in our hearts because of the offense that we have received. It turns it into what? Compassion. It turns that, that pain, that sorrow, into compassion and purifies the memory in transforming the hurt 
into intercession. That is so profound. You cannot truly hate someone that you pray for. You cannot truly hate someone and harbor unforgiveness towards a person that you intercede for. And so one of the things that I would challenge you to do is to think about that person that has harmed you, that has injured you, and to bring that person before the Lord, to present that person before the Lord, and to ask the Lord for the grace to see that person the way that the Lord sees them, to see them through the eyes of mercy and compassion, and to recognize, as the Lord does, that person's brokenness and woundedness and profound need for God's grace. And so when you pray that God would bless that person, that God would illuminate the conscience of that person, that the Lord would fill that person with his presence, his peace, and with his grace. When you begin to intercede on behalf of that person, there's a transformation that slowly but surely takes place. And that is a work of grace. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is precisely what the catechism is driving at. We must surrender to the impulse of the Holy Ghost who wishes to tenderize our hearts and to rid them of unforgiveness. And so pray, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, pray for those who hurt you, who injure you, lest you fall into the trap of unforgiveness, which leads to spiritual death. You know who models this for us? Jesus, who hung from the cross and who beheld the malefactors. He beheld all those who spat on him, who beat him, who cursed him. All those who, who participated in his crucifixion, who, who drove the nails through his sacred hands and his feet, those who crowned his sacred head with thorns, he beheld them. What did he do? He prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He did not internalize the sorrow. He did not internalize the pain. But no, what did he do? He surrendered that pain. He surrendered all of the offenses committed against him. He surrendered it to the Father. And he demonstrated what? Compassion. Compassion and mercy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is what the catechism is driving at here, that when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, when we allow the Holy Spirit to have full and free reign in our hearts, he is able to transform our pain, our anguish, our sorrow into compassion. And he's able to purify our memory and transform that hurt into intercession. It's one of the most powerful passages from the catechism. Furthermore, in the very next paragraph, 2844, the catechism continues, quote, Christian prayer extends to the forgiveness of enemies, transfiguring the disciple by configuring him to his master. Forgiveness is a high point of Christian prayer. Only hearts attuned to God's compassion can receive the gift of prayer. Forgiveness also bears witness that in our world, love is stronger than sin the martyrs of yesterday and today bear this witness to Jesus. Forgiveness is the fundamental condition of the reconciliation of the children of God with their Father and of men with one another. And I know that many of us struggle with this. We struggle with forgiveness, and part of it has to do with the fact that when we are injured, when we are offended, we spend an awful lot of time reflecting upon and internalizing this pain 
and feeling the outrage. We become angry, and that anger leads to bitterness, and it leads to wrathfulness. We become wrathful, and this spirals out of control. This grows in us, this, this anger that can lead to hatred and can lead to wanting vengeance and becoming vengeful. This metastasizes like a cancer. The more we feed it with our attention, the greater and the faster this, this cancer will grow. But our Lord is teaching us that instead of internalizing this pain, we, we should offer this pain to the Lord. We should offer our woundedness to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to invade our hearts and to help tenderize our hearts, which can easily be hardened because of our focus on the pain. No, don't focus on the pain. Focus on the Lord. Focus on his love for you. Focus on his mercy and compassion. And when you meditate upon the goodness of the Lord, as the psalmist did in Psalm 103, this is a perfect psalm to, to meditate upon. As we think about the bountiful, the boundless mercy of God, the extravagant mercy that God has on us, as a modern song renders it, the reckless love of God, that God's love is so extravagant. It is so incredible as to be considered reckless. That's how much God loves us. It's an out-of-control and reckless kind of love. When we think about the incredible and the unfathomable love of God, it is that belief, it is that knowledge of the limitless and eternal love of God that will enable our hearts to be tenderized, to be converted, to be thawed out, to be tenderized enough for us to be able to forgive those who have offended us. Again, don't focus on the injury committed and given. Think about the mercy offered to us by the Lord. That's the key. That's the key to the Our Father. That's the key to our life of prayer, is to meditate on a daily basis on the incredible mercy that God has shown us. Think about your sins, my friends. Think about your sins. Think about all of the horrendous things that you have done and the great mercy that the Lord has shown you. As I think about my own wretchedness, my own sinfulness, my own brokenness, my own faults and failings, the many ways in which I have abandoned the Lord, that I have forsaken the Lord, the many ways in which I have betrayed my Lord. And when I think about the goodness and the kindness of the Lord, when I think about his abounding and steadfast love, how could I withhold forgiveness? How could I? hold a grudge and harbor a grudge and ill will against my neighbor. It's impossible. When you think about, when you meditate upon the great mercy and kindness of the Lord, it is impossible for us to hold on to our pettiness regarding the many ways in which our neighbor offends us and commits sins against us. That is nothing in comparison with the mercy offered to us by our loving Father. Again, it's a matter of perspective. And when we don't enter into the habit of, on a daily basis, thinking about the goodness of the Lord, then it is seemingly insurmountable. How could we possibly forgive what this person has done to me and that they've perhaps done repeatedly? How could I forgive them? Just take a look in the mirror. And recognize how broken you are. Recognize how much you have betrayed the Lord. 
when we think about our own woundedness, our own brokenness, our own poverty, and our own desperate need for God's mercy, this is precisely what enables us to show compassion towards those who have offended us. And the more we think about, the more we meditate upon the goodness of the Lord, the more we enter into that mercy and experience the grace and the power of that mercy, the more that mercy will transform us, the more the Holy Spirit will transform us and change our hardened hearts into the very heart of Christ. That is the whole goal of the Christian journey, is to be configured, to be transformed into other Christs. I want to conclude by citing the very next paragraph, paragraph 2845, which states, and I quote, There is no limit or measure to this essentially divine forgiveness. Whether one speaks of, quote, sins, unquote, as in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, or, quote, debts, unquote, as in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, we are always debtors. Quote, owe no one anything except to love one another, unquote. That's Romans chapter 13, verse 8. The communion of the Holy Trinity is the source and criterion of truth in every relationship. It is lived out in prayer, above all in the Eucharist. I'm going to say that again. It is lived out in prayer, above all in the Eucharist. And then it concludes by quoting St. Cyprian, quote, God does not accept the sacrifice of a sower of disunion, but commands that he depart from the altar so that he may first be reconciled with his brother. For God can be appeased only by prayers that make peace. To God, the better offering is peace, brotherly concord, and a people made one in the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Close quote. That's paragraph 2845 of the Catechism, which speaks of the importance of prayer. The greatest prayer of the church is the Mass. And it is precisely at the sacred liturgy where we come together as brothers and sisters, as the mystical body of Christ, to worship the one true God. And one of the first things that we do as we begin the sacred liturgy is we beg the Lord for forgiveness. We acknowledge that we have failed the Lord, that we have sinned against him. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. In the penitential rite, we express our sorrow, our contrition, and we beg God's forgiveness. But remember that that forgiveness is contingent upon what? It is contingent upon the forgiveness that we offer to one another. And that is precisely why here in this paragraph, as it mentions the Eucharist, it also, in the quote from St. Cyprian, it brings to mind Jesus' command that before you bring your offering before the Lord, before the altar of the Lord, that you should first make peace with your brother. And then come and bring your offering before the Lord because your offering is rendered meaningless if you harbor hatred and animosity against your brother. And so when we approach the throne of grace at the sacred liturgy, let us be mindful of the fact that our prayers will not be efficacious, that we will not receive the grace, the full measure of the grace offered to us by Christ if we are not desirous of forgiving our neighbor. If we do not exemplify, if we do not seek to make peace with those 
who have trespassed against us, if we are unwilling to forgive their debts, then we will not be able to access the grace that is offered to us at each liturgy. We cannot presume on the mercy of the Lord simply because we're in a church saying prayers. If our hearts are not right, if we hold grudges, if we harbor ill will towards our neighbor because of their offenses, if we have not forgiven them from the heart, which does not mean that we're not going to remember their sins. I already spoke about that. The catechism recognizes the fact that we will, in many cases, not be able to forget and that there will be perhaps residual hurt that we'll experience. But, but in spite of that, we can make an act of the will. And in spite of our feelings, in spite of what may be going on on the inside, we can forgive others from the heart. It doesn't mean that, that our emotions are completely aligned and that we are at the point of forgetting the offense. No, 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 no. In order to forgive, all that does not need to be in place. But forgiveness is an act of the will. In spite of the pain, in spite of the sorrow, I will to forgive. That's love. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is an act of the will. Love is, as Thomas Aquinas defined it, willing the good of the other as other. To love our neighbor is to will the greatest good for that person. And love is an act of the will. It is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is not contingent upon our feelings. But we can forgive in spite of the pain and the sorrow that we feel. This is something that is lost on so many of us. But Jesus, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this is what he requires of us. And one final note here, there are also those who struggle because they think that in order to offer forgiveness, that the other person, the person, the offending party has to accept our forgiveness or that the offending party has to first ask for forgiveness in order to truly be pardoned. No, that is not the case. Our ability to forgive, our ability to show mercy and to show grace is not and should not be contingent upon the repentance of that person. I know that's difficult for us because there are people who are intractable. There are people who are unrepentant and who absolutely will not express sorrow or contrition. In those cases, we are still called to forgive them. Whether or not they ask for forgiveness, whether or not they accept their own culpability, our forgiveness, it's not contingent upon them. No, it's contingent upon our willingness to allow the love of God to change our hearts. This is a very, very difficult teaching, my friends. I understand that. I get that. But the saints, they teach us, as the Catechism pointed out, the martyrs, they teach us, those who were put to death, who suffered the most painful torture, the most painful deaths imaginable. They teach us because they were the ones who prayed for their persecutors and prayed for the ones who took their lives, who prayed for the ones who made them suffer. So their hearts were configured to Christ. And guess what? We can experience the same, provided we allow the Lord into our hearts, provided that we allow the Holy Spirit full and free reign in our lives. He can take our hardened hearts, our hearts of stone, as the scriptures declare, and he will give us a heart of flesh. 
It will give us a heart of compassion. He will give us his own heart. My friends, this brings our episode to a close. As always, my hope and prayer is that this podcast series has been and continues to be a source of blessing, inspiration, and encouragement for you. If it has been, praise God for that. For those of you who are watching this episode via our YouTube channel, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to the channel. By liking and subscribing, you indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content and they're more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. That's the whole point of this channel. It exists to make Christ known. If you'd like to take a step further, please consider becoming a patron, a co-producer of this podcast series. You can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. On that page, you'll see a number of different levels of patronage and giving. And for as little as a few dollars a month, you can become a patron. And speaking of patrons, I want to express my heartfelt gratitude to my amazing community of patrons. Without their support and encouragement and partnership, I wouldn't be able to do this work that I am so passionate about. So may God continue to richly bless and repay you for your kindness. And so for those of you who have yet to become patrons, please consider doing so. Every little bit counts as we endeavor to make Christ known. So please visit patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina to find out more. Well, my friends, until we gather again next week to consider the readings for the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time, my fervent prayer continues to be for you. In the words of the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.